when fundamentally we stop trusting the institutions that we believe were set out there to protect us, as when people start to flock to alternative pathways like the blockchain. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast. For today's episode, we're happy to host a conversation between Erica Pimontel and Pierre-Yann Dolbeck. And we would like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Cayuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather. And Chichage, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. Erica P. Montel is a Concordia Public Scholar and a doctoral candidate in accountancy at the John Molson School of Business. And Pierre-Yann Dolbeck is an assistant professor of marketing and also the Concordia University Research Chair in Complexity and Markets. This conversation took place in November 2020 as part of a virtual live event hosted by Fourth Space. Uh, my name is Pierre-Yann Dolbeck. In my work, I tackle big questions to understand the complexity of markets and how people and organizations adapt to such complexity. Uh, and in that light, today I'm in conversation with uh, Erika Pimantel. Uh, Erika, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself in a few words. Thanks so much. So um, I'm a PhD student in accountancy at John Molson, and my interest is really in understanding how professionals find meaning in their work. And we live in a time of tremendous societal and technological change, with some jobs being completely disrupted away. And so I'm interested in how people still manage to put one foot in front of the other and find meaning in those jobs, knowing that those jobs may be disrupted away very soon. Awesome. And, and yeah, like finding meanings in uh, our work life, the role of technology in disrupting work and professional identities uh, and, and the greater impact on technologies and, and transforming the relationship between uh, workers and their companies is, is definitely a very important topic uh, today. Uh, to kick things off, um, I was hoping uh, that we could uh, discuss in more detail one of your governing research interests, uh, that is to better understand how professionals create meaning through their work. Uh, and maybe to better contextualize this interest, can you uh, explain to uh, to myself and, and the audience, uh, what does it mean to find meaning in our work? Sure. So if we think of when I tell someone, tell me the meaning of that, it's it's about how you make sense of the world around you. But I'm specifically looking at how people make positive sense, right? So how they find satisfaction, how they find work to be rewarding. And some jobs like being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a professor are easier to find that type of positive meaning because the job itself is very closely linked to your identity. So if you think of someone who becomes a doctor, they might spend 15 years in school before they actually become a doctor. So that job, and, and every day they get to help people and save lives. So that job is very easy to find meaning. Whereas some jobs may, it may appear to be more unlikely to find meaning. So let me take an example. If you're a zookeeper, is that a job that may prefer deep personal meaning? Well, actually, there's been research that suggests that zookeepers experience work, many of them as a calling, because they feel like it's their job to protect the animals. So my the main thesis of my work is, look, we all have to work. Very few people have won the lottery or are you know independently wealthy so much so that they don't have to work. So let's try to make it something that's positive if it's something that we have to do, something that can be personally gratifying, although maybe easier for some than for others. Amazing. Um, and yeah, and that hits very close to home because uh, I definitely define myself as an individual through my work. So I can I can easily relate to this. Um, what are um, so like maybe why 
why is it so important to define ourselves through our work and uh, what are some pro pros and cons of, of doing so? When you become so deeply wrapped in, in and around your work, what happens if something bad happens? You lose your job, you get fired, you become sick and you can no longer work. So one of the dangers of attaching too much meaning to your work is that nothing else starts to matter. And you also start to make personal decisions that sacrifice everything in the name of work. And I think that's very, very dangerous. As someone who spent a large time of my life becoming a CPA, working in a public accounting firm, that is a very um, personal issue for me about becoming too, too wrapped up in your professional identity. But the, the positive is that if you do become deeply engaged with your work, you can become part of a larger community. And so you can become part of a community of accountants, a community of doctors, a community of lawyers, or a community of whatever group. And that in and of itself can be in, uh, very rewarding. So we have to separate sort of the individual, the psychological aspects of meaning, the individual senses and attitudes toward meaning compared to the social more sociological approach, which allows us to think how meaning is created through interactions, through the confluence of individuals uh, working together. I really think that the line become becomes blurred when you lose yourself to work, when you're willing to compromise too much. So I one of my studies looks at how auditors engage in work that seems completely at odds with with ethical norms of behavior. And it's when you start to let go or put the work in front of your own values and what you know to be right from wrong that I think becomes the real danger when work takes over from life. So in this particular study that I did, the auditors explained that we engage in this seemingly unethical behavior, but it's because what they do allows them to satisfy what they think is their commitment to the community at large. So they have these rationalizations that allow them to position their ethical dilemmas differently. So it's not to say that you don't do your job, but you sort of adapt your attitudes to, and your outlook to put an emphasis on the parts of the work that matters most to you. So for instance, if I'm an, an academic, you know, an academic's job is research, teaching, and service. Well, if I really feel like it's important for me to connect with the world beyond my research And that's something I have a, you know, a personal project that matters to me. I can achieve, I can job craft, I can focus on the element of being an academic. Maybe that's teaching, maybe that's service that allows me to be in service of that objective. So as long as you can have an alignment of your priorities within your job, I think that the two are sort of in simpatico, but some jobs just don't allow that, Right. If you are going to, if your job is to defend the worst murderers in the world, that's your job. How do you align that with your personal values? Well, maybe your values that everyone deserves a good defense. That's how you get up in the morning. That's how you do it. But it's really getting that alignment, I think, is important. So are these, um, and, and I, I, I don't know if there's research on that topic, but are these, um, th does that mean that you're... The, the goals or the objective of your job and your own goals and, and objective as, as, a, as a human being are kind of in, in traction and forming one another. And, and by that, I mean, can, can your job reshape who you are as a person versus you finding meaning and expressing who you are in your job? That's a really good point, Periana. And talking about how folks are enriched through their work the other way around, I haven't seen any research on that because that sounds like 
you know, I, I think that would be a beautiful thing to achieve, but we have to be very careful. Like you're not being taken in by the game, you know, that you feel that your work is enriching you, but certainly there are certain professions where I imagine uh, that can be possible. For instance, let's say you have a job that allows you to travel and that you get to see the world in ways you could not have done before. You know, as an academic, I went to HEC Paris last year. I got to live in Paris for a semester. That was very personally enriching. And I got to grow as an individual by getting to live abroad, by getting to see different cultures while I was traveling through Europe. So yeah, certainly my job as an academic enriched me as a person. But because academia is something that is beautiful and unique and lets you, you know, expand your worldview in ways that other things don't allow you to. But that's a very interesting uh a co- comment, Perianne, about is could there be a, a could the correlation go the other way, where work reinforces you? And I haven't seen any research on that, but I think they'd be very interesting to explore. I have a, a paper now where we're looking at the limits of what happens when auditors traditionally have been kind of responsible for providing trust in financial markets. It's their job, right? They provide confidence. They sell confidence. And now the blockchain space comes in and. Why are we not seeing an abundance of account of audit opinions in this area? One auditors say we just don't know it. We just don't understand the technology. We're not in a position to certify. So that's okay. The auditors are maybe willfully not engaging with this space. But the more fundamental, the more interesting thing is the blockchainers are saying, we don't need financial professionals. We don't need investment bankers to raise money. We can do our own kind of thing. They have their own ways of raising money. We don't need auditors. We don't need lawyers. We have smart contracts. And so what happens to the professionals when they engage with these sectors and they get turned away, they get rebuffed. And it's really these competing attitudes towards the world. The auditors in my, that I interview see the world in terms of a very traditional financial order, and they don't understand why their expertise is not wanted. And the blockchain ecosystem has an ethos of transparency, openness to them, who are you, Mr. Auditor? I don't know KPMG. I don't know EY. I don't know Deloitte. These names mean nothing to me. I'm going to engage with my own professionals. So absolutely, we have these two opposing logics, these two opposing worldviews that the professionals just don't understand. And so sometimes as an accountant, there's all these you know publications, and I myself am responsible for them as well, saying, what's the future of the accounting profession in light of technologies like blockchain? Of course, the, the profession wants to position itself as having a future. And I think there is a future for us. But we need to be very mindful about we can't ignore the blockchain. We can't ignore new technologies. We need to say, how do we fit alongside or need to change our attitudes in order to find a new place for ourselves? Not to sound too Bordeauxian, but I have to recognize the forms of capital that, that they possess, right? I can only recognize the power of an auditor to certify financial statements if I recognize their title, if I recognize their firm, as I re- if I recognize their forms of expertise. But in, my, in the world that I'm looking at, the blockchain is just coming from such a different place. It's just completely alternative to the financial order by design. And like the, the ethos of why, the Bitcoin was, why Bitcoin was created in the first place was to upend the finance, was to have transactions completely outside the banking system. So by design, we're trying to ignore the power that the bankers, the investors, the auditors possess. And like originally when the Bitcoin white paper was a little bit more uh, apolitical, but the founder of 
of Bitcoin, the pseudonym, the individual or group of individuals was Satoshi Nakamoto. And as time went on, the the the, the readings, the some of his his or her uh, blog posts or things we can read about this person became more and more political and it became more and more anti-established financial. So why, how does this affect the blockchain sector now? If someone in the blockchain sector wants to get assurance, they're not going to look to a financial auditor because they don't recognize the value, the power, the capital of those individuals. They have their own forms of expertise, their own auditors that exist. So they're within the blockchain ecosystem power brokers are emerging in the space independent of the traditional power brokers that we can see. If you look at what's happening in the legal system at the moment uh, in the U.S. with uh, like how Trump is utilizing the Supreme Court or how William Bard has been uh, politicized uh, in his profession, could this provide kind of a, a, a jolt for the uh, introduction of blockchain to legal transaction? I think the problem is people are realizing that within the financial world, you have to pay to play, right? Like certain people control the narrative and we see studies on like SEC standard setting activities where there's a lot of politicking that goes into how the rules of the game are set and who sets the rules and who they apply to. So one thing that we're seeing that's new in the blockchain sector is called decentralized finance. And it's really tricking lending transactions and moving them onto the blockchain and new types of transactions, it's not just replicating traditional lending operations onto the blockchain, but also having completely new things. So like we we know about stock options. We know they exist in the real world. That kind of thing exists a little bit. There's things called stable coins, which are, you know, kind of draw on that uh, idea in the blockchain space. So the, the challenges that people have getting a fair shake in the traditional financial system are what are promoting people to look for alternatives. I'll just give you a, a personal anecdote. When I was on exchange last year, it was very, very hard for me to open a bank account in France. And at one point I got so fed up, I said, that's it. I'm just going with Bitcoin. It doesn't make sense to me that it's so hard for me to open a bank account. And there's no, like, I wasn't looking to borrow money. I was just looking to put some euro that I would be able to use for the time that I was there. And it's this frustration of saying, why can I not get a fair shake at just opening, starting my life, starting a credit history? I need to get into an alternative system. So I think that the difficulties, the also think of the financial crisis, fundamentally shook people's trust in who was the financial order there to serve, right? If you think of all those mortgages that were securitized and then sold to people for based on something that they were not, was taking advantage of investors. And so I think that when fundamentally we stop trusting the institutions that we believe were set out there to protect us, and when people start to flock to alternative pathways or alternative programs like the blockchain. And in this case, if we think of the United States, if you fundamentally don't trust that the Supreme Court is out there to protect you or William Barr is out there to protect you, then you just lose faith in the system altogether. And, and I guess um, like maybe rethinking at some point what's an accountant or what's a lawyer will, uh, will be the route that, that will be necessary to both provide these critical skills uh, and, and the technical one, as, as, you're, as you're mentioning. Uh, will people connect to the idea of work differently, which I think is kind of a, a great big picture question. So the question of will people relate to work differently is absolutely true. And I think from the research I've done on remote work, people are finding that work can take a different place in their life 
when it's not something that you have to do nine to five chained to a desk. If you stop looking at work as you're selling your time to your employer, but rather you're selling your skills to satisfy certain or produce certain outputs, that fundamentally changes your relationship with work. Because if I'm working remotely, nobody knows how many hours I'm working. If I'm doing it in 35 hours, if I'm doing it in 50 hours, it doesn't really matter. It comes down to what is it that my employer engaged me to do and can I do it really, really well? And can I do it really, really well in a way that I can organize it so that I can take advantage of other areas of my life? Then work can become very, very enjoyable. I mean, one of the things I love about academic work is the fact that we own our own schedules. You know, you, you have to teach and you have committee meetings, but when you do your writing, when you do your research is on you. And that's to me what I really enjoy. So I think working remotely is going to change our relationship to work, where work fits in terms of our life. But when we take the pandemic on top of it, I think that has, that has two implications. One is for our own health and safety. We're becoming very, very aware of the importance of putting our own health and safety first. And I think that may cause people to rethink the types of jobs that they engage with. You know, if you're going to be in a service organ and a service type job, you have to think twice about the health risks that that presents that maybe before you wouldn't even have considered. And I think that the pandemic is causing a tremendous blurring of work and personal boundaries because everything is happening in the same space. That also contributes to, well, how does work fit into all these other things I've committed to? Or is work taking an outsized impact on all my other life um, commitments, as it were. I like this, and and I think we can, uh, you know, conclude our conversation. Um, my name is Pierre Dalbeck. I uh, I'm assistant professor in marketing at JMSB. I was here with uh, Erika Pimentel, a PhD student in accountancy and Concordia Public Scholar. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you found this conversation enjoyable. Thank you for listening to the Fourth Space podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at CU Fourth Space, and wherever else you find your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by Anna Voklovec. Editing by Chloe Lalonde and Mackay Hawkrow. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent. And a very special thanks to Erica Pimontel and Pierre-Yan Dolbeck. Thanks, and see you soon.